Well, Merry Almost Christmas this morning. It's good to see you. So glad that you are here. And I just have to ask, isn't it exciting to see that that new parking lot is almost done on the north side of our campus? Amen. Um, We're really excited that uh, we're going to have this extra space available for our Christmas Eve services starting tonight uh, because of all the people that we're all inviting, right? Who are going to be joining us and uh, celebrating uh, Christmas with the Southwinds family. You know, as we're getting closer uh, to our grand opening, we're just three months away, going to be in March. I I need to let you know kind of an update that we have seen in the last couple of months kind of a slowdown in our next-gen giving. And uh, we just want to do all that we can to ensure that we are moving into the next season in our church's life in a really healthy way financially. So we're, we're letting you know about this, and we're asking you most of all to be praying Uh, that God would enable the resources that are necessary just to come in, that we would be able uh, to give those things. Uh, Pray also that uh, each one of us will have the perseverance and endurance uh, to stay faithful to the commitments that we have made. We've been on a journey now, the next-gen spiritual journey, for two and a half years, and we got six months uh, to go. And Southwinds, you have been uh, so incredibly generous during this time, and I'm very confident uh, that you're going to uh, show that generosity as we keep walking these last steps into this new season. I'm confident in the Lord uh, that we are going to finish strong for His glory. Amen? Well, I want to invite you to open uh, your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 3 this morning, uh, looking at verses 16 through 21. And today we're going to be unwrapping God's love. And uh, we've been unwrapping some various gifts that God gives to his people in his word uh, through this season. And today we're uh, unwrapping God's greatest gift. And we're going to do that by looking at the most familiar verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. This is often the first verse we we teach our kids. Uh, It's a verse that shows up in the stands on football games on Sunday afternoons. You know, you notice that. Uh, Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. And we're going to read this verse, and, but also a few more verses up to 21 to understand more of the context uh, for these very familiar words. Here's what John writes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now, if you are here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, uh, this is a great verse to think about because it, it tells you so much about what makes Christian faith unique. You see, in John 3.16, we find the beating heart of Christmas. Christmas is all about God's amazing love. But you know, while many people love John 3.16, there are some who find it kind of troubling at a heart level 
because they're wondering, they're asking, can we really be certain of God's love? In fact, some of you, you do wonder, does God really love me? And you may be surprised to hear this, but I've even heard pastors admit I've struggled to believe God actually loves me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just wrestling with the trust that God could actually love you, that Romans 8, 31 to 39 is true, that nothing will ever separate you from God's love if you are in Christ Jesus. You know, some people kind of play the game, he loves me, he loves me not with God's love based on the circumstances in their life. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's like my health is good, he loves me. I have cancer, he loves me not. I'm married, he loves me. I'm still single, he loves me not. I got a promotion, he loves me. I got fired, he loves me not. You ever find yourself thinking about God's love like this, like based on your circumstances? Or, or maybe you have this kind of insecurity. You believe in theory that God really does love, but you're really wrestling with the idea that he could actually love you. And it's because maybe of your moral failures or maybe your background, or maybe for some of you, it's about what has been done to you. I have really good news for every one of us today. You don't have to live with uncertainty about God's love. And I want all of us today to just see the glory and the beauty and the certainty of God's saving love from John three sixteen through 21. Now, as we go through this, you're going to see this passage is not just about God's love. It's also about God's judgment. But it is against this dark backdrop of sin and judgment that the, the saving love of God shines so bright like a bright star in a black sky. There are three realities that we're going to unwrap uh, God's love at Christmas with this season. And the first one is the greatness of God's love. You can write this down in your message notes, the greatness of God's love. Uh, again, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So God's love is great. Well, what makes it so great? There are three concepts I want kind of to, to lift out and, and talk about with you. The first one is this. God's love is great because it is a gift. In other words, we cannot earn God's love. And I want to point this out in two small words, the words for and world. First word is for. Uh, it's the first word in this verse, verse 16, and it links verse 16 with the previous two verses. Verses 14 and 15 say, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, to really understand John 3.16, you need to read the context. And really, it's helpful to read the entire chapter, John 3. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, you'll see that Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he's talking to him about how a person can know God, about how a person can be saved from their sins. And when he gets to verse 14, Jesus refers uh, to an Old Testament story. You can find it in Numbers chapter 21 where the nation of Israel has rebelled against God and God sends poisonous snakes throughout the camp to bite the people. Uh, not exactly a, a bedtime story you probably want to read for your children to help them sleep well at night, but it's there, it happened, and they ask Moses to pray for them. 
And God tells Moses to, to uh, hold up a bronze serpent on a pole. And he says, everyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. Now, these verses in John are telling us that this is all a result of God's great love. Just as Jesus is held up like this serpent and all who look to him are saved, out of that was the true love of God that motivated this. Now, it's a crazy story, I'll admit. Jesus is like a snake on a pole. But what it's really telling us and reminding us is that sin's poison, sin's venom and its consequences were absorbed by Jesus, in Jesus, so that we may have life. As Galatians 3.13 says, Jesus became the curse of sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus became sin so that in him we might become righteous. And this is all just reminding us we don't earn God's love. We don't deserve God's love. So what was it that motivated God to take such an action? And John 3.16 says, love. We were not lovable. In fact, I just have to tell some of you because you're a little mistaken on this one. You aren't lovable. <laughs> not in God's sight, not for God's love, because we're all rebels. We were rebellious. God's love is unique. No one else ever loves quite like this. For example, if you are a single guy and you're really interested in a particular lady, then you are, in a very real sense, trying to earn her love, aren't you? I mean, and if you do win her over, why does she love you? On, on what basis? Well, it's because of your looks. That wouldn't be true for many of us. Or it's because of our personality or it's because of our intelligence, or it's because of just the way she feels around you. But the point is, there is something in you that is meriting her love. You have earned her love. God doesn't love like this. God's love is unique. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how God loved. God does not love you because you have made yourself lovable. Uh, there's a great uh, passage that a lot of us have probably never really encountered in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And there are two verses there, verses 7 and 8, that I really would commend to you that you should read on your own. Uh, just amazing verses. And in these verses, Moses asks the Israelite people this question, why did God set his love on you as a nation? And the answer Moses gives is just because. Just because. God loves, Moses says, because. Because he wanted to. He chose to love because he chose to love. And God loves us in the same way. God loves you because he loves you. We don't earn it. It's not because of anything we've ever done. It is not based on our morality, our achievements, our wealth. It is just because God loves. It is a gift, a gift. That second word I wanted to point out is the word world. And John likes this word. He uses it 186 times in his gospel. 
And I think when we read world, we, we tend to think of the whole planet. We think of the bigness of the world. But you will miss here the glory and the greatness of God's love if that's all you think. See, for John, world refers to the broken, fallen, sinful, rebellious world, the world system. You see, what makes God's love for the world so stunning is not the world's bigness, but the world's badness. The emphasis that John makes is not on the width and breadth of God's love, but on how low God stoops to show his love. For God so loves this broken, fallen, rebellious, sinful, wicked, evil world. It's an unearned love. It's a stunning love. God loves this rebellious world, and since you're rebellious, just admit it, say I'm rebellious. I wasn't very confidently spoken. We don't like to say it, do we? (laughs) But it's true. But here's the good news. Since you're rebellious, that includes you. That includes me. He loves you in particular. You see, God's love is great. Why? Because it's a gift. The second thing that shows us how great God's love is, is sacrifice. Sacrifice. We see that in this verse. God gives us his best. And the thing I want to point out here is very important. God's love is not just sentimentalism. It's not just a feeling. Uh, We get confused about this. Have you ever had someone say they love you, but then their actions don't back it up? We've all had that happen to us. Well, God demonstrated his love for us. Love always acts. Uh, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Further, notice that little word, so. What does this mean? I think we tend to read it uh, initially as it's speaking of intensity. For God so loved the world. God's love was so great. But that's probably not what it means. This word probably is more about what God did, about how God loved. And technically, the Greek word means uh, in this manner or in the following way. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. So how did God love the world? Well, he gave. Galatians 2.20 said, he loved me and gave himself for me. And I think it's important for us, especially at Christmas, to remember that we imitate God whenever we give. Rick Warren said, we are never more like God than when we give. And that is so true. Our Father loves to give good gifts to His children, Luke eleven thirteen, James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And here is the best of all gifts. Our loving Father gave His one and only Son. God's love is so great because of what He gave and of who He gave. Uh, Notice in these verses, God not only sent His Son, that's verse 17, but God also surrendered His Son, verse 16. Why would He do that? What motivated Him to surrender His only Son was love. It's the greatness of God's love for you and for me. And if the greatness of that love is measured by the worth of this gift, then you can't get any greater than this. That that really is what Romans 8.32 is telling us. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Apostle Paul here in this verse is, is making a, an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the, the large to the small. He's saying if God is going to do the big thing, give his only son, then we can trust him to keep us to the end, graciously give us all things. That's the smaller thing. You see, God did not redeem us to leave us. God redeemed us to be with us. And God's love for us, which is demonstrated in the cross, which happened in the past, that is the present assurance that we have of his love now. That will be always the future assurance of his love for us. Uh, maybe if you're a football fan, you could think of it like this. Super Bowl Sunday is coming in, in just a handful of weeks. It's going to be in Atlanta this year. Um, and uh, Super Bowl 53, it's like the biggest day of the year for a lot of people, they think. And I, I checked it out. Uh, Super Bowl tickets uh, right now um, that are available are starting at $3,700. And that's for those seats like way up there. And uh, so what if, what if, we can all dream, you know, Christmas time. What if I decided that I was going to take 10 of you and I was going to pay your way? I was going to buy your ticket. I was going to buy your airplane ticket. I was going to pay for your hotels. I looked that up too, like start four or $500 a night to stay in hotels there because it's Super Bowl Sunday. I was going to take care of all of this. Don't, don't get excited. It ain't happening. <laughs> but let's just, let's just say and I, I provided all of that, and I bought the food, and then Super Bowl Sunday comes, and the closest hotel we could get was like 10 miles away, and it's time to leave and go to the, the stadium, and someone says, we need to call Uber, and I say, I'm not paying for Uber. We're going to have to walk. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? I mean, you buy the ticket, you pay for the airplane, you pay for the hotel, you buy the food, and you're not willing to pay for Uber? This is what we're talking about here. God has already made the big purchase, and that is the cross. You see, our greatest problem is solved. And here's what you need to understand. Uh, we deal with all of our other problems in this life in light of that great solution, the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And this is not just something for us to rest on when we die. It is a present assurance for us right now, today. Something happened in space, time, history that has proven once and for all, that God really does love his children. And this love is now the paradigm for our love. It's how we should love one another freely, generously, sacrificially, wholeheartedly. It's interesting how the Bible often connects God's love and generosity like this with the way we should be generous with our resources. Paul does that uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He motivates the people there to financial generosity by reflecting on Jesus' giving of himself. See, God's love is empowering our love. And we are selfish people apart from the gospel that frees us to be lavish in our love and in our service and in our giving. His love, God's love is great because it's a gift, because it's a sacrifice. It's also great because it's eternal. It's eternal. God's love changes us forever. 
Because of God's love, we now have the power to love. Listen again to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this this phrase, eternal life. It, It doesn't just mean an endless amount of days when you die. It means a quality of life, not just a quantity of days. And the Bible says, if you know Jesus, you have right now eternal life. You have it. Right now, if you're spiritually alive, you have eternal life. You have moved from death to life. And how did that happen? Well, it happened because you believed in him. That's what John says. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's important we notice this because uh, this is not just believing in something in general. This is not what our culture likes to say, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it, as long as it makes you happy, as long as you, you believe that's what, you, that's what matters. This is not all roads lead to God. This says you have to believe in him. It's very particular. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. You see, God has made a way to go from death to life, and that way is in Christ. It's the narrow gate. It's the narrow way. And our culture hates this idea. Our culture despises the thinking that says there is only one way. But I'm here to tell you this morning, what we should really be amazed at is that God even made a way at all. Given our sin, given our rebellion, given our idolatry, do you understand that God could have left us to ourselves in our sin, in our death, and been totally just in doing that? But he didn't. He has made a way in Christ. God so loves the world that he has made a way for you to escape condemnation. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that you could live and not die. He hasn't loved the world in such a way that you could ignore his way and reject his way. It's his way. He's God. Now, the rest of this paragraph unfolds the importance of this choice to believe in Jesus. Because if you do believe, that love changes you forever. Here's the second reality uh, to unwrapping God's great love at Christmas. So I'm going to call it the purpose of God's love. You can write that down. This comes from verse 17, which says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Can I get a witness? Is that a good time for an amen right there? I mean, that's good news because God could have sent his son into the world to condemn the world. He had the right. He is God. But he didn't. He did not send Jesus to condemn, John says, but to save the world through him. Now, John is building on verse 16, and you may notice that the first word of verse 17 is for, uh, again, just like it was in verse 16. This is now expressing God's purpose of saving, not condemning sinners. And again, that word is referring back to verses 14 and 15. Why would God send the Son to be lifted up for sinners? And verse 16 says he loved the world. Verse 17 says he wanted to save the world. You see, God, in his great love, 
sent his only son to save sinners like you and sinners like me. Is this your view of God or do you tend to think of him more as an angry old man? The Bible says this passage is telling us in great love, God the Father authored our salvation. Christ the Son accomplished our salvation. The Holy Spirit applied it to our hearts. If you've never understood this, please understand it now. Jesus' crucifixion wasn't designed to change God's mind, but to reveal it, to reveal it. We see displayed in the cross the great love of the Father as he gives his Son to die for sinners. And why doesn't God come and judge the world right now? Because of his love. The Bible says it is his patient love. He's giving people time to repent. You know, I know some people who have parents who are elderly and they lived a very long time and they've prayed for their parents for years, but still even late, late, late into their lives, their parents don't believe that they themselves are sinners. They don't think that they have anything to repent of. You see, God in his great love sent Jesus into this world to save sinners, but you have to repent. See, what good is a savior if there's nothing from which we need to be saved? This is the divine offer of salvation to the whole world, to this world of fallen, broken, rebellious sinners. And we have to respond. And that's the third reality that we unwrap God's love at Christmas. It's our response to God's love. How do people respond to God's love, to what God has done in sending Jesus? Well, there's a mixed reaction. There's two basic responses, uh, belief or unbelief. And we're going to see in verses 19 through 21, just file this away. John's going to tell us that our choice actually reveals what we love. And so we're motivated by what we love to choose what we will believe. Now, verse 18, John says again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now, I want you to not miss those words condemned and not condemned. I want you to notice they are not in the future tense. Condemnation is not just in the future after you die. If you don't believe now, the Bible says you are condemned already. Remember what we said a moment ago about eternal life, how it is a present reality, how it is a quality of life, not a quantity of days, how it's not merely that we live forever, but that we're even now alive with God, both now and forever, that we are God's children, both now and forever. But on the other side of things, if you are outside of Christ, that means you don't have this kind of life. That means you actually have death and condemnation now and forever. What does condemnation now mean? It is guilt, it is shame, it is restlessness. It is an awaiting to the judgment that is later to come. And this reminds us that disbelief, unbelief, is not just a little mistake, that it has eternal ramifications. You, you can't escape condemnation after death, but these words, this passage is telling us right now, present condemnation is reversible. 
you can go from condemned to justified. And the good news is you can believe and be made alive. You can be set free. You can be forgiven. And we are told in this passage, there is no third group. That means every single person in this room is in one of two groups, either condemned or not condemned. And again, the difference between those groups is not how religious you are, not how spiritual you are, not how moral you are, not how good you are. It's just belief. Do you believe in Jesus? And you can believe in Jesus right now, and condemnation will be removed from you. In fact, I was thinking this week about Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. you remember the story? Peter is preaching to those people in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes down. 3,000 people are saved, and they come to Christ. And we are told that some of those people who trusted Christ on the day of Pentecost were weeks before that, the same people who were yelling about Jesus, crucify him. God changed them. They heard the good news. They believed their status was reversed. So what do you have to do to have condemnation reversed? Just believe. I mean, it's all through this paragraph. And in fact, it's really all throughout the Bible. It's the essential message of God to us all through the Bible. Trust me. Believe in me. This is what Jesus is saying to us on the cross. Trust me. Believe in me. I am the substitute for your sins. I am the one who is being lifted up so that all who believe may not perish but have eternal life. Now, verses 19 through 21 unpack this, and they tell us something very important. They tell us that your response reveals what you love. Whether you believe or not, your response reveals what you love. So God gives this great gift, his one and only son. Why do some people turn it down? Why do some reject this divine provision for salvation? Well, these verses tell you why. Those people love something else more. This is not going to be on the screen, but you might want to write it down because it's an important thing to understand. We see here that we believe what we love, and we love what we believe. See, people who reject... Jesus. They don't reject him out of a problem with the Savior. The the, the problem is with their own heart. Their, Their loves are the wrong loves. You say, where do you get this? Well, look at verse 19. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Notice that verb, loved. This was us before we met Christ. We loved Darkness, And do you remember that? Some of you still recall before you came to Christ, you understand when you look back on your life, then the reason you did what you did is you loved it. You loved the darkness. And even now, as we still as Christ followers deal with the residue of the old person, I mean, why is it that we still sin? At one level, it is still that we love it. The only thing that will overcome a love for sin as a stronger love for Jesus 
See, what this is telling us is that we need something to happen in our hearts that will awaken us to the stronger and greater love because as human beings, we are lovers. John says the reason people haven't looked to Jesus is they love their own sin. They love their own way. They love themselves. They love darkness. You know, Christmas is a lot about light, right? And that grows out of the truth that is reflected right here. Light has come into the world. That's what Christmas is about. And this light, Jesus Christ, always causes a reaction. It's sort of like when you flip a switch in a dark room. The light causes a reaction, and some love the light. Like a a moth, they fly to the light, but some love the darkness, and they scurry from the light like a roach, and nobody's neutral. No one's neutral. Jesus has come into this world, and we choose what we love. Some people see him and love him. Some people see him and reject him because they love darkness more. And notice how intense this is. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. They hate the light. They love darkness and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, John is just telling us in our fallen condition, we love darkness. And you love darkness apart from Christ because you can sin there without any exposure. That's why you like to hide. You love the darkness and our choices reveal what we love and we always choose in keeping with who we are in our nature. And this just tells us what we need is a new nature. We need a new heart. We need what Jesus was telling Nicodemus about earlier in this very chapter, John 3. Do you remember? He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new life. You know, verse 21 shows us why we should never feel superior to anyone who has not believed yet. And if we have believed today, it is solely because of God's amazing grace in opening our eyes and opening our hearts, giving us a new nature so that we have new loves. Notice how he says it. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Now, this phrase, whoever lives by the truth, is a Semitic expression. And what John means here is the act of believing in Jesus, believing in the truth, believing on him. That's the person who loves the light. And when you love the light, you go into the light. Why? So that, John says, it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Not in his own power, not in her own power, Not because anybody has figured it out. Not because anybody was more moral. It is because it has been done through God. What does this mean? It means if you have come to the light, it is because of God's amazing love and amazing grace. It is through God that your nature has been changed. It is through God, therefore, that your loves have been changed. And therefore, it is through God that you have believed. See, at one time, we all loved the darkness. But now by the power and the grace and the love of God, our hearts have been changed. And if anyone is hearing this as me suggesting that I or anyone else here is superior to people who don't believe 
please, please set that aside. What I'm telling you, it is not at all that. It is solely because of God's gracious activity in our lives. Do you understand this is our hope as Christ followers when we tell other people about Jesus? Our hope is that God would bring someone to life. It's not about us having superior arguments or us being more clever or us being able to out-debate them. Our hope is in God's power, and we just present Jesus prayerfully, as honestly and as fully as we can, and we trust God with the rest. I kind of have an interesting perspective on this that most of you probably wouldn't really understand because I'm a pastor. And here's the thing. Um, You're normal people, but I'm not to most people outside the church, right? And I have been, that was a little too vigorous, uh, a yes right there. I have been in conversations on airplanes and talking to waiters and waitresses in restaurants and like at parties in the neighborhood at various times. And and at some point in these conversations, someone will say, because we all ask this question, so what do you do? That's a pretty easy thing for most of you to answer, okay? But when you're a pastor, you have to think how you're going to answer that very carefully. Because I know many times when I say, I'm a pastor, it's conversation over. I get some really strange looks. Sometimes, this is the truth, I have had people do this. And they just pull back. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think it would be better if I just answered that question. Well, I kill puppies. That's my job. Been doing it for decades because that might get a better reaction. You know, many people in our culture today think not only that Christian faith is stupid, they think it's harmful and destructive. So what hope do we have in a post-Christian culture where, where people not only reject the gospel, but they actually think what we believe is harming and destroying the world? We love people, even when they don't love us back. And we pray that God would work mightily in their hearts to to believe on his son just like he did in our hearts. So what is the application of all these words that we've been reading and studying? Well, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, it's real simple. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. This Christmas, you can receive light and life and love from God's only Son that he has given for you. You can come out of the darkness into Jesus' beautiful light. And if you are a Christ follower, then your response is to give him glory for granting you the grace to believe, for giving you the gift that you didn't deserve. Just marvel at his love. For you. There's a famous story from the 1960s. A, a theologian named Karl Barth, world famous author and speaker, he was speaking at Princeton, brilliant mind. And, and during one of the discussion times, a seminary student asked Dr. Barth, What is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? That's a great question, isn't it? And he paused for a moment and he thought and then he raised his head 
And with grace and simplicity, he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is indeed a glorious, beautiful, wonderful, life-changing thought. So don't resist his love today. Believe in Jesus, God's son, God's light that's come into the world. And if you are a Christian, don't doubt God's love for you, his personal love for you. If you ever doubt it, and it will happen sometimes, then go back to the cross and think about the love that God displayed there fully and climactically as his son, his only son, gave his life for you. God loves. This is his word for us today as his people. And all of us together say, Would you bow your heads as we pray?